Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Church leaders are spending quite a bit of time these days developing their emergency playbooks, and TLC has given a forum for some of these ideas. There's a lot of talk, for example, about something called spiritual communion, receiving the virtues of the Eucharist without actually consuming it. We're also talking a lot about virtual options for worship. Wait a second. Have you stopped and thought since all of this has started, what universe we're in? Several weeks ago, many of us would have been much, much more skeptical about approaching worship this way. We know the research about the negative effects of screen time on relationships, the brain, your chiropractor bills. Besides all that, we're Episcopalians, we're Anglicans, we're Catholics. We know the body matters. We know real presence matters in worship. We have sacramental theology. And to top it off, we just like old things. Of course, the reasons for that change from skepticism to embrace are clear, but what questions are emerging along with these solutions? What theological frameworks and tools of discernment could we be using that perhaps we're not? Can we get too much enjoyment from virtual church? Is it the church's job to offer ready solutions at all to this emptiness, this loneliness? Are ministers getting too distracted from prayer by their eagerness to learn new technologies? Are we keeping too busy during coronavirus when God is maybe saying, keep still? Father Jeff Hansen and Neil Dingra sat down last week, virtually, of course, with the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner and Bishop Dan Martins to hash out some of these questions and many more. Father Jeff gives a great intro to these two men and to himself and to Neil. So I'll let him take it from here.
So good afternoon. This is Father Jeff Hansen from the Church of the Advent on Beacon Hill in Boston, where I am the curate for Christian education, speaking today uh, with my co-host, uh, Neil Dingra. Do you want to introduce yourself, Neil? Thank you very much. My name is Neil Dingra. I'm a doctoral student in education at the University of Maryland, and I'm a contributor to the Covenant blog. So today we're joined by Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner, who is professor of historical theology at Wycliffe College in Toronto. He's published a great many books over the years on a wide range of theological topics, from scripture to ecclesiology and church unity, to natural theology and the nature and unity of the Anglican communion. We're also joined by Right Reverend Daniel Martins, who is the 11th Bishop of Springfield, Illinois. He has a long career of service to multiple parishes in Louisiana, the San Joaquin Valley, and in Indiana. And today we're speaking about the current crisis and the church's response to it. Neil, would you like to begin? Sure. Um, Bishop Martins, you've written about the decision to suspend public worship in your diocese as the most agonizingly difficult decision that you've ever made in your entire life. But you recommended that your uh, that people use live streaming and spiritual communion. And then, movingly, you wrote about spiritual communion during your pilgrimage to Spain, to Catholic Spain, where for six weeks you depended on spiritual communion. So the question I wanted to ask you is, somewhat bluntly, how does a diocese thrive without the Eucharist? Can a diocese thrive with just spiritual communion and live streaming for a lengthy period of time? Well, the very way you frame the question uh, contains the answer. And that is, I think we may need to make a distinction between the Eucharist and communion. It's not a distinction I'm sure very many Episcopalians and other Christians make. I've been, I've been clear uh, in my communication with the clergy of my diocese that I want the Eucharist to be celebrated. Uh, the governor has stepped in, and it may not be uh, able to be celebrated literally in our churches. But I want it to be—I want the Eucharist to be celebrated because there's something to be said for that being the ongoing offering, the 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 high priestly offering of the church, and which is particularly necessary in a time of pandemic like this to have to have that compelling and powerful work of intercession continue while we're getting through this. And even though under normal circumstances, the act of receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion is an integral part of the celebration of the Eucharist, I think under extraordinary circumstances like this, we can begin to parse those two things uh, and understand that the Eucharist goes on in a representative sort of way uh, while we're getting through this, and that those who are not able to receive communion at those celebrations of the Eucharist then need to adopt the spirituality of spiritual communion, which I found sustaining, as I said, when I was on the Camino. Thanks. Uh, Professor Radner, I was wondering if you'd like to add to that. Can one combine a devotion to the Eucharist with a spirituality of not receiving or receiving only spiritually? Uh, I certainly think one can. One of the realities, of course, is that in the Anglican Church, and we'll stick with that, all kinds of different uh, directives are being offered around the world by bishops and so on. Uh, the, the Diocese of Toronto, for instance, uh, does not allow live streaming. 
of the Eucharistic service at all. They, they allow priests to, uh, they are allowing them to celebrate it uh, privately, uh, but they are speaking about a Eucharistic fast as something to take on. I don't know whether people have questioned what exactly that means, especially during Easter, as one comes up, uh, is it possible to fast from the great Thanksgiving, which is God's gift of his son uh, and his life and resurrection. Uh, and yet, that's what some people are talking about. I Let me just say that the idea of spiritual communion is probably new to a lot of Anglicans. It is actually apparently new to a lot of Roman Catholics too, despite the fact that it's been around for a long time. And um, it makes a lot of sense, at least within the tradition, the Catholic tradition. It's tied to all kinds of other elements of of the Christian life and the grace of God in Christ, such as baptism by desire, for instance. I mean, there's this notion that God, if you will, honors the deepest desires of our hearts. Um, and he honors them because he gives them to us. <laughs> the deepest desires of our hearts are not things we manufacture on our own. They are God's own gifts to us, which he then crowns in some fashion, uh, to use the old medieval view of, of crowning his own works. And so there's long been a tradition that those deep desires, which we could say the Holy Spirit lifts up in us uh, and kindles within us, are ones that God takes to himself. One of those desires are surely to be joined to the body of Christ in a tangible way. And if there are things that prevent us from doing that physically, the tradition has always been that God gives us that desire in order for that desire to be fulfilled by him in some fashion. And spiritual communion in the Eucharistically understood is part of that understanding. So I think it makes all kinds of sense. One of the things, though, that I would want to say is that it's important to understand the difference between the physical character of, of the Eucharist and the spiritual desire that we might have for it, that God does, if you will, honor. The Eucharist is about bodies. Yes, it's about bodies which are transformed in, in the resurrection and in the future for us. They are about Jesus's body. And the notion that bodies can somehow be um, overlapped in, in our life of faith uh, in this world is wrong. I mean, that's not true. They can't be. In the end, we are to be joined to the suffering and resurrected flesh of Jesus. And he calls us to that. And there's no way to get around that. And therefore, there's something, even with spiritual communion, there is, there is something about it which is different than receiving the race sacramenti, uh, the, the actual thing uh, of, 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 of the sacrament. There is this longing that's meant to be engaged somehow, that even though God gives us himself spiritually, uh, gives himself to us spiritually, we also know that there's something more that we are being drawn into that we are not able to get to yet. So I'd say, I do think there's something important about feeling, if you will, the loss of the sacramental presence at the same time, uh, which is one reason why I think that it's important for churches to help people feel that loss. I don't think this is an accident. Uh, we, we don't have pandemics by accident. I mean, as Christians, we don't think so. Uh, many people do. But as Christians, we think this is tied up with God's own life and will for us. And clearly, therefore, one of the things is going to be suffering the loss of that presence and learning to grow in that somehow. 
And I'm not saying that there's a simple thing we're all supposed to get and a formula that's supposed to come out. So spiritual communion, yes, absolutely, but also to lead us into something greater at some point and to see what we're missing. We have to we have to discern the loss that we have been asked to experience as well at the same time. Sure. So spiritual communion can be, in Bishop Martin's words, sustaining and, and even sweet. But at the same time, it should also have the character of a Eucharistic fast. As you mentioned, the Canadian bishops have talked about where we're sharing the fast of the risen Christ until he can drink the fruit of the vine with us uh, at the kingdom of God. Yeah, I suppose. I'm not sure I'd use the word fast. I'm not sure that's the most, I mean, that's what they're using, but I think it can also make it seem like it's a discipline that you have brought upon yourself in order to, I mean, generally fasting is something we take on. Sure. Uh, I think this is is a famine. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. God gives famine as well. And this is a famine. Uh, but it is God, so it is gracious eventually. I, I agree that we, we shouldn't think of it as, as a, a voluntary fast, and I like that image of famine, nor should we allow uh, spiritual communion to become so sweet that we are not eager to go back to the real thing. I, I, I still remember the first communion I made after my necessary fast from communion while I was on the Camino when I was asked to to be the celebrant at a liturgy at the Anglican Center in Rome. And uh, it was very, very sweet on that occasion to come back to the Eucharist in that in that full way. So I no no way should we normalize what we're experiencing now. Right. I, another analogy I would bring to this is I, as a young uh, ordained, uh, I was a deacon at the time, uh, minister. My first place I worked was in Burundi, East Africa. This was early 80s. They sent me to a um, three-month language school run by the so-called White Fathers, a a Roman Catholic missionary order. Um, And there was mostly Roman Catholic missionaries who were there. There were some Protestants as well, daily Eucharist and so on. But that was not for me to receive. And that was three months that I uh, sat and participated uh, uh, audibly, if you will, and prayerfully in the Eucharist with my those who became my deep friends in Christ. But I couldn't, I couldn't participate. Um, and people have talked to others have talked about this being in a place where you can't share communion with somebody for some reason, and yet you're both led into a place where you can feel your separations deeply, but also feel. Somehow you have a glimmer of the joy of what it would mean to be unified at the same time. And so there's this longing as well as proleptic sense of what's being, what's awaiting. And it's a complicated thing, but I think it's a good thing. And so uh, I think where we're at, you can think analogously. We're being asked to, uh, we're being asked to suffer something for the sake of, of something that awaits healing. And I think God wants us to do that in some fashion. But he gives us grace in the midst of that. And I think the spiritual communion realities is a part and a very deep part of that grace. Sure. So part of this is to accept the loss and not look for a solution. To switch a little bit, I did want to ask about something that's been mentioned, which has to do with live streaming and the reality that 
the sacraments are about bodies and, and not virtual bodies or avatars at that. Now, um, Bishop, you did recommend live streaming. I think, Professor Radner, you've expressed perhaps skepticism or caution about live streaming. So I wonder if we could talk about live streaming uh, worship. Well, yes, I have recommended it, I would say, without deep and sustained thought and reflection. So I'm certainly open to having my mind changed. But it was just, as they would say in football, an audible in the moment to just to throw a, a lifeline to people in my diocese who I thought might be just flailing in the water. And just to have the vision of something, a familiar place and familiar words and a familiar face on the live stream would be spiritually comforting. But I agree that it does open up all kinds of questions and um, it makes us think, uh, I think, more deeply about what the Eucharist actually is. It, it prompts us to do things that we might not have been prompted to do outside of this crisis. Thanks for the sports metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, I'm, I, I've, I've sort of said that I have questions about live streaming, and that's about it. If they're questions. They're not. I think it would be incredibly presumptuous of, of somebody like me to say nobody should live stream worship or, or the, the Eucharist or what have you because there's something intrinsically bad about it. I don't think that's true at all. My main concerns are at a time like this that we take advantage of something God is giving us and that we don't get distracted. And one of the things I have found is uh, that very quickly as the, the virus sort of began to be publicized and then things started happening in the North America and elsewhere, obviously, we became bombarded. And I speak personally, but I'm speaking for others as well as clergy and leaders and not just in the church and academics and so on. We became bombarded with all the things we were supposed to do and new ways we can do this. And here's programs that you can use and let's figure this out. And many clergy are spending half their time figuring out technology rather than praying. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that they have to be a zero-sum game, but to some, at some point they become that. And we're being, God is trying to focus us on something. So my point is, let's figure out what that is. And let's order our lives as, as churches and church leaders, helping one another to figure out what God is trying to focus us on to. That's all. I do think there are a lot of distractions that have been thrown into our midst. Um, as a result of this, that, that we need to find a way to put aside. And live streaming may or may not be one of those, but it might be, and we should think about that. I would say that uh, figuring out technology and praying are, are not mutually exclusive, and I realize Dr. Radner wasn't suggesting that. But I could just testify from my own experience. I, I work from home under normal circumstances at least three days a week, and I have a dedicated space a sort of a domestic oratory where I pray the offices every day. And then uh, for the first time ever, uh, I've now celebrated the Eucharist there privately with my wife on two occasions. And I would say that even as I, I, I have also then tried to figure out how to uh, record sermons and record video greetings to the diocese in that space and have taken, I've learned how to edit video in ways I never could before. And I've learned how to position my camera phone 
uh, in the right way to uh, get the best effect. So I've, I've dealt with technology, but I would say that my prayer life has never been richer than it has been through this crisis. Well, one thing I was thinking about is the liturgies have been televised, for instance, for a very long time. A Vatican II document even recommends that it be done with dignity. And a lot of people have watched the Mass or other forms of liturgy on television. I think the number would even be in the millions if you looked at the different languages in different countries. And from what I can tell, many of them are people who are immobile, hospitalized, there are some who are simply alienated from Christian communities. I'm wondering if, um, and, and these people, I, I must admit, were invisible to me, um, and I think to a lot of theological scholarship before this. With live streaming, there is a loss, as you mentioned, but is there the possibility of solidarity? In a sense, we're together with people who, for whatever reason, can't come to physical church. Live streaming on its own can make lots of sense, and it does make lots of sense. The reality is that we live in a world where nothing is on its own, and live streaming is part of a culture where lots of other kinds of internet, computer stuff, cyber life has proliferated. So it's not live streaming, per se, that I raise questions about. It's the fact that, I mean, and, and I have never spent more time in front of a computer than in the last two and a half weeks. I don't think that's good for me. It's not, it's physiologically not good for people. They've done all these studies about what it does to the brain and what it does to, to your own, as a result, to your own body and so on. I think it would be kind of too bad if at this one moment we are thrown back home and on our own, we do more of what we've been trying to get, get away from. That's all. Is there some way that this time can be a time? where we recapture something that has been lost in this culture of, of virtual presence and engagement and busyness, is there some way where we can recapture some of that? I don't have an answer to that, but I would have thought that would be a major question for all church leaders to engage. So you spoke before in a piece for the Living Church online about um, a kind of linking between the sort of siliconization of our moment and infantilization. And I assume this is the sort of thing that you have in mind, right? That you've been sort of expanding on something like that thought, right? That um, the current posture of the church seems to be in a way um, maternalistic or something, uh, while the laity are, in a sense, correspondingly treated as children. And so that the worry here, I suppose, or the danger is that that's what that situation is being exacerbated rather than ameliorated by these means. Is, am I reading you correctly? Yeah, and I think that's right. And let me just say here that my use of the, of the images of maternalization is probably uh, less uh, optimal than, than they might have been. I, I, I think, let's, let's leave that aside. The question of infantilization, though, I do think I would want to hold on to. That is to say that the nature of our calling as Christians is to be held in some fashion, rather than sent out in some fashion. Now, that, that's not linked necessarily to live streaming or the computer or what have you. All I'm saying is we have to think of ways, uh, as I, the thing that I wrote about, to help people mature here. What is the maturing aspect of where we're at, of growing, literally, growing in, in, in Christ? How are we growing in Christ right here? And there are things people can say about care that they've offered one another, 
despite not being able to meet and paying attention to one another and contacting, all these things are are appropriate. They're good things. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to say anything else. I'm not sure they're enough, but they're they're all good. So the issue is growing in our faith. How are we growing in our faith here? That seems to be a major issue. So you mentioned um, the the work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Bishop Martin's used the word comfort as um, something that he was seeking to offer the people in his care and charge. And I was wondering about to what extent we might correct or improve our understanding of that maternal imagery or about the way that we think about the action of God in our lives by sort of dwelling on that word comforter, which as we all know, Tyndale chose uh, as a translation for um, the, the, the Holy Ghost. And as we know, um, what this really meant, right, was to make strong as opposed to uh, console in a sort of an emotional register, right? So some of us still say the comfortable words, right? Immediately before uh, the prayer of consecration in the mass. And so I'm wondering whether, to what extent, like the problem might be addressed by sort of stronger education around the way we think about the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives and thinking about even the nature of this word comfort as perhaps having more to do with a kind of an emboldening rather than a sort of emotional coddling. Well, I think it's worth observing with respect to the pejorative maternalization that classically we do speak of the church as our mother uh, and, and and use uh, uh, feminine pronouns when speaking of the church. Uh, so it might not be entirely a bad thing that the church is ex- exercising her maternal care uh, for her members in the midst of all this. Yeah, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to take anything away from that. The term maternalization wasn't a, wasn't meant to, to uh, denigrate mothers or maternal, but in the same way we talk about paternalistic negatively, I think it, we can talk about maternalistic similarly. Um, one of the questions I would raise, and it really, I, I keep coming back to this, it really comes to a question discerning where we're at at this time of the virus is whether it's comfort that we need primarily. Clearly, everybody needs comfort, and I'm talking about in the normal sense of the term, uh, at all kinds of times in their life. But in fact, is the issue that we're all frightened? No doubt we're frightened. We're stressed, certainly. Stress and and fear, though, are not the same thing. Uh, We're certainly confused. And again, confusion and fear is not the same thing. I'm just wondering... You know, for all the all the worries and the hard work, and yes, illness, and uh, God forbid, the burgeoning of death. Uh, nonetheless, we're nothing like in the middle of Syria. <laughs> we're nothing like, let alone something like the bubonic plague or something like that. We are we are in something different, and I think it's very important to try to figure out what is peculiar about this time where we have shut everything down and driven everybody home, uh, and uh, people losing jobs as a result, and money. That's fearful in some sense. But it's something else. It's dislocating. It's uh, disrupting. People People have very different views about what's really happening. In any case, with respect to the Holy Spirit, it's not clear to me that comfort is the number one thing that that the Spirit might be leading us or offering us leading us into all truth. Let's take that one as a possibility for the parakletos as well. What is the truth that we're being led into here? A lot of things are going to fall away, by the way, at the end of this. 
There are a lot of churches that are going to go out of business, I'm pretty sure, and institutions. Everybody's scrambling to figure out how in the world they're going to pay for things when things start all over again. And a lot of small businesses, uh, mom and pop businesses, and, and, and this, that you all know this. Um, what are we going to be, what are we being taught here? And to me, the Holy Spirit is, is going to be doing something there. And I'm not sure. Yes, comfort can mean a lot more than it does in its, its sort of quotidian sense. But maybe it's not even the best word to use precisely because it's confusing to us. It does, it does give a sense of buffering. You know, we're going we're gonna to calm things down and we're going to create a place, a space where things are softer somehow and not hitting us so hard. Uh, I think there's a whole culture of buffering that goes far beyond the, the time of the virus. And I think what's happening is that buffer is being stripped away. I think it's good. I think it's good that it's being stripped away. Perhaps one of the things that the paraclete is, le- one of the truths that the paraclete is leading us into as more or less affluent first world North Americans and Europeans we we have only in the past century or so developed a presumptive default for health and safety. Uh, that has not always been the case, and it's still not the case for most of the world. But yet, you're right, uh, Dr. Radner, we are not Syria, nor are we undergoing an Ebola epidemic, which is much more frightening than than this. But it, it, it's disturbed the homeostasis drastically enough that our confidence that we all deserve as, a, as almost a God-given right uh, to, be, to be safe and comfortable, uh, that's certainly been challenged. Yeah, no, that, that's a very well, well put. Homeostasis is, is a myth. It always was. I mean, in our funeral service, in the midst of life, we are in death. This isn't try to sort of be gloomy about everything, but we have forgotten that. And we don't know how to deal with it once suddenly we see, indeed, in the midst of our lives, it's not this clear sailing. It never was for anybody. I mean, I think most individuals know that on some level. But as a culture, I think uh, what we teach one another, homeostasis is a value which is being upset. Do you think there was also a kind of religious homeostasis where we always expected that there would be a church and there would be public celebrations of the Eucharist and there would be a clergyman or or woman who could visit us? And in some sense, is part of the disruption the fact that the church can't be present in the same way? So um, another contributor to Covenant, Isa Macaulay, who's, who's a uh, who's an Anglican priest, wrote an interesting op-ed in the New York Times where he said, now the sign of the church is to show solidarity by not sharing, so by refusing to infect one another. Or that here, as opposed to during the AIDS epidemic, uh, the absence of the church, he says, is testimony to the presence of God because it shows that we care about our neighbors. So does this disrupt a kind of spiritual homeostasis, a kind of theological homeostasis? I think, yes, I think it does, but it does in many, many directions. That is to say, it's not just a simple thing that we thought this, but now we're being shown we should 
think that. Let's take the case of the fact that churches have been closed altogether in many places. Um, in, in Toronto, uh, Ontario, they talk about essential services. So uh, all non-essential services, businesses are closed, right? Essential services, though, can remain open. And it turns out there are quite a few essential services besides groceries and pharmacies, uh, plumbers and, and construct people building all the big condominiums. They're still allowed to work, construction companies and uh, so on. Home Supply, Home Depot, Walmart. Um, the liquor stores, the state-run liquor stores are essential services. So are now the state-run uh, or state um, overseen uh, marijuana stores. They're open. They're considered essential services. Churches are not essential services. Well, there's an interesting point. Uh, why are they not? I think it's a surprise to people to think they're not. Part of me wonders why Christians think they're not. They're willing to, to accept this. Uh, uh, the, the liquor stores are essential services. Churches are not. Now, that, that's a funny way of looking at the spiritual life anyway. I'm not saying the state should see us that way, but doesn't it bother Christians that, that we are no longer seen as essential? Um, now you could say, well, that's because you get people together and we can't have people getting together. Well, you got lots of people in the grocery stores. I'm sorry. You've got them all lined up outside six spaces apart uh, before they go in and stuff. Uh, people could have thought this one through with churches. If people were really interested, if the state was really interested in this, they could have said, okay, let's think of ways people can keep churches open that will be as safe as the liquor stores. Well, no. And Christians have gone along with this. I'm not, whether they should or shouldn't, that's not my point. My point is it's interesting that there hasn't been a whole lot of reflection on this. Um, so that kind of homeostasis also, I think, is going to get set, uh, uh, messed up even if it isn't yet, people are going to look back at this and wonder what was the church that it did what it did, whatever that was. What did it think it was doing that it did what it did? And it's not going to be one thing. I'm not talking about any one thing. I'm talking about all kinds of things. Uh, that's going to be good, but I also think it's going to be upsetting to look in the, in the, in the rear view mirror, as it were, and see what it was we thought our values were that we could live with. There's certainly been a different way that churches have looked at this crisis than the way churches and clergy have looked at pandemics in the past. I Very early on, I could not help but be reminded of the heroic witness of Constance and her companions, the martyrs of Memphis, who ministered to people at the risk of their own lives and indeed the loss of their own lives during the yellow fever epidemic uh, in 1878. And one can cite a, a long tradition of clergy very heroically uh, and fearlessly risking their own welfare in order to minister to people in the midst of epidemics. But now we're told that in this case, the loving thing to do is to not visit them. And I'm not sure that both viewpoints aren't true. I, I don't. I don't have a neat and tidy way to reconcile them. But but I I certainly would not want to denigrate the heroic witness of those whom I've just cited. Nor would I want to deny the the science uh, behind flattening the curve 
and and all those other things that we're urged to do. But it 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 has forced us to uh, come to grips with exactly who we are, what we what we think the church is, what is ministry. I read something a few days ago uh, by a senior military chaplain in the army talking about this question of essential services, and he says the military has known for uh, decades, centuries, that chaplains are an essential service to those who are being asked to do things like jump out of airplanes. So we may not be all being asked to jump out of airplanes, but we are certainly asked to weather a storm that we uh, could not have anticipated and don't really know how to navigate. And uh, if chaplains are essential services to the military, then I think an argument can be made that there are essential services uh, to society today. I'm not sure if there's much to add to that. <laughs> what do you think, Neil? Is there something else you'd want to pose? I mean, well, if we have a few minutes, I guess mm-hmm. there is one way to look at that, which is what Professor Radner said, like suddenly we're maybe a non-essential therapeutic addendum to gas stations and liquor stores and grocery stores and pharmacies. Maybe to introduce another perspective, there's an Orthodox priest, Nicholas Denisenko, who wrote a piece on, I think, the Pray Tell blog, where he was saying the point of the liturgy in Christianity isn't necessarily to meet and have, you know, regular and, and a large number of Eucharists and to be able to gather together. The point of the liturgy, he put, and he's channeling the Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, is to manifest a love of God directed toward the world. And in the case where you have an infectious disease, what's essential then is to almost surrender what you previously thought would be essential. So the liturgy can't happen, as painful as that is, as agonizing, to use Bishop Martin's words. But what's really essential isn't the liturgy itself, but to become a liturgical being and to find other ways to manifest the love of God to the world. So then the paradox is what's essential is the ability to give up what you previously thought would have been essential. It's a nice paradox. And I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that it's, it's not true either. Sure. Uh, clearly, Jesus, you know, the, the life of the world is granted to the Jesus giving up his own life. I mean, that's, uh, that's a fundamental paradox right there. I just don't think the church, at the, I'll be honest, I don't think right now the church is giving up its own life out of a sense of service. I think we're being forced into something. Uh, we haven't thought it through and we haven't had time to do it. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of um, audibles that are being made right now without question. And there's no way not to do that. But I certainly don't want us to think that the choices we have made are the right ones. <laughs> That's all. I'm not saying they're the wrong ones. Actually, one of the things about this time, I think, which is peculiar is we don't know. And uh, we don't know how bad the epidemic is. We don't really know about this virus. You know, we don't know how many people really have it. It doesn't have symptoms for many people. We're not going to know any of this for a long time as people sort this out. We don't know whether the, the, the measures we're taking are really effective in the long run. We don't know whether they were necessary in order to be effective. We'll figure this out. And that's okay. We don't have to know. So what do we do about the fact that we're living in the midst of, of some 
a, a great confusion and lack of knowing, and we have to make decisions about what we're doing. That's a very peculiar place to be, although many of us in daily life are in that with our families and our work. We, we're asked to make decisions about things we don't really have the information to make them responsibly about. I would like, and I don't have an answer to this, I would like to know how God asks us to live in the midst of what we don't know. That's a, that's a, uh, and where is the life? Where is the life of the wor- of God given to the world when you don't know what you're supposed to do? I don't know that giving up X is life giving. I actually don't know that. I don't know that seizing something is life giving either in this case. It may sound like I'm poo pooing this, but I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, essentially skeptical person, but that goes in all directions. You know, it's not that I don't believe what the scientists uh, so-called are saying, epidemiologists here and there. It's just that I know that they're going to learn something a lot, which they don't know much right now. Uh, And that's going to change some of the things they say, likewise, those who criticize them. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. I think there is a paradox. There are all kinds of paradoxes at work. I think a deep humility is involved here, which, which does merge into penitence, which does merge into faith in these things. And these are, these are the kinds of things that will be the light that the church shares of God in the world. So will people see humility, penitence, faith, hope? How are they going to do that? That is the light, ultimately. I agree. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning covenant blog, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.